Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Media Voices. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. This is the latest in our series of deep dives looking at the key media moments that have shaped the industry over the past 12 months. And as you'll have seen from the podcast title, this time we're talking about podcasting. You can go back and listen to the episodes on subscriptions, broadcast newsletters, and much more. But as you'll have heard, we're bringing in a media expert for every single episode this season. And this week, we're joined by Naomi Meller, who is producer and host of, well, multiple podcasts, including Smashing the Ceiling. And she's founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. Thank you so much for joining us, Naomi. Thanks for having me, guys. It's such a delight to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we saw you at our podcast summit. Podcasters love talking about podcasting. We love a bit of meta in the podcasting world, I have to say. <laughs> and also great, great summit. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Oh. I met some brilliant people. And as somebody who's not from the publishing world, um, I found it really insightful and so much good stuff happening. So well done. It was a great day. Oh, you can, come, you can come on again. <laughs> Uh, but the topics we're discussing this season are all going to be featured in our annual Media Moments 2022 report, which is going to be released very shortly, actually, on November 30th. And you can pre-register to receive that report as soon as it goes live over at voices.media forward slash MM22. But we also have somebody else to thank for this entire season, don't we, Peter? We do. Uh, through the season, the Media Moments report... Uh, it wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors, Pool. Pool have recently launched their own B2B media named The Audiences, which is really, really good. Um, there's so much stuff on there, given that they've just launched. Uh, they're sharing expert content to support digital publishing, brand publishing professionals in better engaging, converting and retaining their audiences. You can find The Audiences over at theaudiences.com or you can find out more about Pool. Now, Pool has three O's, P-O-O-L, at pool.tech. Perfect. So do go across there and check them out. This entire season on report would not be possible without them. But for now, we're going to talk about podcasting. And as Naomi mentioned, podcasters love to talk about podcasting. So this will presumably be the longest episode in Media Voices history. But I wondered, to begin with, if we could maybe start with, before we get into the nitty gritty, maybe our own sentiment analysis of the past year in podcasting because as we saw at the, the summit everybody's very excited about it but do we get the impression that it's excitement based on uh reality or are we still in kind of that hype phase of, of podcasting esther what, what's your take um i think i still think there's a lot of hype um there's definitely some i, th I think the earlier people have gone into experimenting the quicker reality has hit um i think a lot of publishers went into it um, having seen, you know, the sort of celebrity podcast get, you know, millions of listeners, people touting these huge numbers. And I think there was this idea that, oh, we can go into podcasting and we can reach this huge new audience. You know, we'll get them to subscribe, we'll get them to, to join our brand. And, and, you know, the future's bright, the future's sunny. And actually, definitely what, certainly what we've seen this year in a lot of the conversations with people is that the reality is, is sort of sunk in over the past sort of 12 to 18 months, the podca podcasts are still brilliant. They are still a brilliant, brilliant thing for publishers to be in, but they're not, they're not a kind of massive audience driver. They are really, really good for engaging your super fans. And it's kind of been that switch. And, and the, the quicker publishers have realized that, the more they've looked at their podcast and said, actually, how can we use our podcasts to super serve that audience? And Amy, from what you've heard, and in fact, from what you've seen, from working with the collective and various clients, is there that recognition then that podcasting is serving a a function, but it's not necessarily you're not going to get the kind of the Joe Rogan audience right off the bat. 
Mm. I think I think there's two things that I've really noticed this year, and one of them is around audience tolerance with regard to podcasting quality, because I think a lot of podcasts launched in the pandemic, and there was this huge exponential growth where we were all living in a strange lockdown environment, and our tolerance for really quite shonky audio in quite a lot of cases <laughs> suddenly went through the roof because everyone was had just bought a microphone and was recording at home and was working their way through online platforms and and recording and you know the, there was a lot of guests who had little to no technical experience but everybody just put up with that at that stage because we couldn't do any better in some respects and i think there's been a a huge rise in the quality and availability of online recording platforms. You know, we're all recording this interview remotely, which has given rise to an improvement in remote recording anyway. But I do think that when you start to look at the top end of the market, there has been a return to in-person and that high quality recording that is really creating uh, the best listener experience. And I think people are returning to that and expecting more from their podcasts than perhaps they were definitely two years ago and maybe even a year ago. Whilst I agree with with Esther that we are still in this golden age, you know, we're, we're still in the Wild West and the Gold Rush period, I think, you know, if we equate it to America in the 18th, late Victorian period. Um, but I think, and there's huge growth to come. Um, it's quite an outdated stat now, but I think the the last count was there was something like 2 million podcasts but there are 800 million youtube channels and 2 billion blogs so when you look at it like that we've got a long way to go in terms of parity of numbers with other media channels what people are producing and the nature of what people are producing is is really changing again and again particularly with publishing that those deep dive, investigative, complex, narrative long forms are really proving very popular. And the second thing with those is they are not cheap or easy to make. And I think that is where the separation between the hobby podcaster in their bedroom who is interviewing people remotely separates from the larger team's who have got a lot of resource behind them and are really doing a different type of work. And I think that the the gulf between those is probably going to gradually increase over a period of time. You come on our podcast, you <laughs> you accuse us of being hobbyists because we're all recording in our bedroom. <laughs> there is oh, nothing hobbyist there. about this show. <laughs> Go on, Peter, bring us down. I can get a microphone in my bedroom. It's too <laughs> messy. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, I think we said that uh, that last panel that I did at the summit, uh, we talked about the professionalization of it, which is a horrible word. It sounds like mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. you really don't want to be involved with, the professionalization of podcasting. But I, I do think that, and I think there's a there's a really interesting stat someone's putting in a document here. I think it's from Muckrack Research. It says 16% of podcasters are actually working for media companies. And I think that's really interesting. That mm. That's quite high considering what it, it used to look like. Um, so, yeah, that idea of professionalization, I think, is a, is a really big deal. There's another thing in there, that idea that 55% of people <laughs> in this survey think there's too many podcasts. I just found yeah. that fascinating. <laughs> 
that's that classic you know how long should a podcast be or can a podcast be too long it's no it can just be too boring it's the same thing it's not that it's not that there's too many podcasts it's there's too many crap podcasts this is exactly it yeah i was going to say like how bound up is that in things like pod fade and the fact that there are like 80 different podcasts out there with the same name at this point and the the kind of the ecosystem is clogged up with these dead podcasts but does that problem not go back you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't sort of go to the front page of Google, Google something, and say, "Oh, there are too many websites." It kind of goes back <laughs> yeah. to, to what you're saying with, like, it's this is where the discoverability is still yeah, in 2022 amazing. a huge issue for podcasts. And like Spotify, mm. bless them, have, have done their best, but you're still getting it, it's still almost impossible to find podcasts that you like without sort of wading through this maze of of all the others. And I, I think you look at anything else you know you look at streaming you look at sort of any other type of content you consume and, and the discovery has, has been much 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 better and i don't really know what the solution is to that i don't know if um yeah you i know, know we were talking the, about newsletters last week and sort of but, yeah, newsletters i was just, I was just mm. going to say this that problem is exactly the same problem that we spoke about last week about newsletters finding a newsletter that you really want in a sense this is a great thing for publishers it's brilliant for publishers because you know you know as an example, The Telegraph, who won uh, a podcast a year last year, you know they're going to do a good podcast because they spend money, they put professional investigative journalists on it, they care about uh, production values, they don't have shonky audio, that's a great technical term that I'm going to use from now on. <laughs> I'm nothing um, if not highly technical, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that's good for brands, but if you look at it from just a podcasting point of view, it's just a mess. Yeah. I think it's really, that discoverability piece is really interesting. And I, there's, a, there's an interesting app called Good Pods, which I don't know if you guys have come across, which is along similar lines to Goodreads, where you, you follow people you know. So it's almost a, an amalgamation between the social media and a podcast listening app whereby your discoverability comes through what people you know or follow are listening to in the same way that on Goodreads, you see what people are reading who you follow or know. And it's almost like being part of a podcast club. And I think that's quite an innovative idea. I mean, that's, that's what also- Facebook was hoping to do, isn't it? Because they, they, I mean, their podcasting lo- lo- lasts like less than a year because um, they, I think they launched it halfway through last year. <laughs> And then, yeah, midway through this year, they're like, oh, no, we're actually not going to do it. But that's that's kind of what they were hoping to do. They were hoping mm-hmm. to say, you know, if you, if you listen to this podcast, your friend network can see that. But no, mm-hmm. they, they just care about reels and like becoming another TikTok now. So. But I think isn't that an advantage of being a niche is that they've almost trying to do. T- I wonder if that hasn't particularly worked because Facebook is already known for a different uh function and that people haven't understood the point of that functionality which you you know there's an argument about whose fault that is or why that hasn't worked for them but good pods a bit like goodreads is very specific in their aim and therefore that specificity and niche perhaps one could argue is is their superpower in that sense it's really interesting i think because in the notes i've mentioned here that in a lot of ways the podcast arrived on the scene fully formed we haven't seen the kind of the form itself evolve a lot since you know the three people around a table uh, form that it sort of arrived with originally right. but, well, <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with it that's what i'm saying it was like a mature medium in terms of its editorial form when it arrived but 
what is really interesting is that sharing podcasting has been done as you would share, say, articles, whereas YouTube has kind of got out ahead of the curve a little bit and you can mm. clip sections. You can do that on Twitch as well. And it feels like potentially there is a need for some podcasting platforms to rethink how they allow users to share the podcast rather than in its entirety or just a link to the show. Actually, a more considered way for people to discover it through recommendations. I think that's where people like Headliner went. Mm. I'm not, you know... Headliner was a sponsor on a on a podcast summit. God love them, um, but you know the fact that they supported us aside, that kind of audiogram sharing aspect to that sort of platform, I think, is really powerful. Mm. Do you know what this actually says? That all the smartest podcasting companies actually sponsor our summit <laughs> and our rewards. That's amazing. Well done, it's guys. Good, it's a good job we're so chunky because otherwise people would have thought this is scripted as for the next summit. <laughs> okay, one, one thing I feel like we can't not bring up now, you've mentioned it, is YouTube. Because this absolutely shocked me earlier this year when there was a, there was a survey that came out that said um, – the, you know, Spotify and Apple have long been sort of competing for the for the most popular podcast platform, but the most popular podcast platform in the US by quite a long way, um, it's, it's almost sixty percent of people find use podcasts on this platform is YouTube, mm. and I still can't, I, I still cannot get my head around that. But it, it, when when we were sort of asking people, it's like yeah yeah, yeah I, you know I'll have sort of I'll put a podcast in the background, I'll listen to it on YouTube, and like they don't they don't necessarily watch, they just use it as listening and is that because youtube is better at discoverability i don't know no it's because youtube's friggin huge it's just massive yeah absolutely scale see it's interesting though isn't it because this is where we now get into the discussion around collision of audio and video because <sighs> so for instance the always sunny podcast which i think outstripped um joe rogan in terms of popularity earlier this year their hosts refer to their their audience by two terms: the creeps who watch, and then just the <laughs> listeners who listen to the podcast. It is technically like a video series. Yeah, three people talking. You don't need to necessarily see their faces. Um, I definitely don't it's... need to see my face. Not not when we're, not when we're recording at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. Peter, will you stop leaping ahead in the? <laughs> that's my joke for later on in the, hey. in the show notes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it, it, I, I still struggle to get my head around it, mainly because I don't watch much stuff on YouTube. And like, if I'm listening to a podcast, it tends to be in the car, so I'll have it on Spotify. Mm. The data says otherwise, and I, I well, we are now on YouTube, much to my reluctance. But if we're talking about engaging new audiences, so I often try to talk to younger people about how they listen to podcasts, if they listen to podcasts at all, and I'm still amazed by how many of them don't. Mm -hmm. But for example... I asked my hairdresser last month if she listens to podcasts. She's 21. And she said, oh, I only listen to one. And then she said, oh, well, I don't really listen. I watch on YouTube because I always have to have something to watch. And the podcast she named was Amazing Grace, who is a TikTok star and has had a breakout podcast. Do we call it a podcast? Because really, it's essentially a chat show on YouTube. Yeah. Where is the line? Where what what defines a podcast these days is a whole other conversation. That was like um, last year's big conversation about you know it's no longer RSS, therefore not a podcast. And everyone was very <laughs> all the podcast purists were very up in arms about this. But it's a really but good I, point. Yeah, well, I find it really interesting, and I think if we want to grow podcasts into the next generation, do you have to go where those listeners slash watchers slash creeps, creeps are? You know, <laughs> um, because isn't that how we keep the industry going into the future? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Isn't this the same conversation we've had like over the last decade about you've you've got to 
you can have the same piece of content and it's about kind of repurposing it and, and mm-hmm. putting it where the audience wants to consume it. So if somebody wants to listen to a podcast while they're walking their dog, they can. If somebody wants to sit there and like weirdly watch it on YouTube, they can. And it's the same, you know, it's the same content. It's, it's okay, a classic well, idea of being where the audience is. You have mm-hmm. to be where the audience is, whether that's TikTok or YouTube. We're not well, going on TikTok, guys. I absolutely draw the line. Rather than save on my media moment of the year to the end, I'm going to bring it up now because it's Oof. pertinent to the discussion. So in April, Spotify caused consternation and panic and stress by announcing that it was opening up its video podcasting capabilities to more countries. And so video podcasting, which is undoubtedly where a lot of the industry is going. And as that discussion shows, it doesn't even need to technically be a podcast account under there. It leads to high viewing and listenership figures. We've heard that from a number of sources, but they do require a lot more thought, both from production and hosts. So Naomi, does this go back to what you were saying about that kind of professionalization of it and it being some of those more high-end organizations who can actually do video podcasting really, really well? I think so. And I found it really interesting at the podcast show earlier this year, which a lot of people attended and was the first time that had been held in the UK. But a lot of American uh, visitors who were there said, oh, this is like podcast movement was in its fifth year. This is very well developed already. You know, there's a lot happening here. And I found it really fascinating to hear the discussion there because a lot of people It was a lot of industry people and a lot of professionals within podcasting that were at that conference. And so much of the discussion, there was two big words that I put into the doc. One of them was visualization. And the second one was internationalization. Mm. And uh, one of the things I wanted to chat about, and, and I'm not sure if this is the right time, but was about the translation of podcasts into other languages, which I think is a huge option for publishers and a really, really big future point, particularly for for your audience and for those involved in publishing. Because one of the things that's just starting to happen as a growth point is that successful formats and successful stories that translate easily can be distributed out to huge audiences, be that in Europe or beyond, by companies like Podimo would be a big one who are involved in this with clients like Amazon Music and and Wondery in particular. Mm. And that has the capacity to take podcasts to a whole new level and a whole new audience, in particularly in uh, jurisdictions or countries where the podcasting industry itself is not as large or as developed and perhaps doesn't have the budget behind it that that it does in other places. So I think that professionalization is something that we are definitely going to see uh, a huge amount coming up. And I think the visualization, so the use of video, I'm the same as you guys. Like I went into podcasting because I do not want to be seen. Uh, <laughs> I don't want my face out there. If I'd have wanted to be on video, I would have started a YouTube channel yeah. and I didn't. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it's one of the great, shames almost of podcasting because I love the intimacy of audio as a medium. And that's my joy. That's my absolute joy about podcasting is that you're in someone's ears and it's just this very intimate 
experience listening. And we know that most people listen to podcasts alone as well, which I think okay, is Okay, this, this is now sounding creepy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But that's the thing. She's she's totally right. There is, I, know, I, I know, feel like the danger, you know, we were talking about, we've, we've spoken about this before in that transition from, you know, host run ads to programmatic. That removal of intimacy by going to video and making it a little bit more professional and a little bit less chaotic and a little bit less like it's just you and four people you have a parasocial relationship with in a room together. I feel like that does strip something special away from podcasting to some extent. You know, you think all the way back to the days of Serial, which is quite a long, you know, relatively in podcasting terms, quite a long time ago now. I guess that was a a, a very personal listening experience that didn't feature any video or any form of visualization at all. And yet was different to the three or four people sitting around a table with whom you form a parasocial relationship. Very different at that stage. Still brilliant. but. I wonder whether that, if the pressure existed in the early stages of those narrative uh, podcasts being developed, that they would be the same as what they have become. Mm. I, th- I think that's really true for smaller podcasters as well. Yeah. You know, look, like, look at uh, Reby Media. Uh, and Reby Media did the Life Before Birth podcast. You know, it's kind of traces this. Um, is it an I- was the IVF journey, was it? They wouldn't have done that if they were forced to do that as a video podcast. No. They just wouldn't have done it. No. And I think so many of those investigators like serial, but the sort of stuff that the Telegraph is doing or the mm-hmm. FT is doing or whoever, Guardian, they just wouldn't do that if you had that. No. If it if you had to do a video, and I know you don't, but if that had become the sort of mean, the standard for the industry, those things wouldn't get made. If it was Doctor Who, it would be a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. That's all... Oh. That's all merging is that actually, again, one of the things we've seen this year, and I don't want to steal the media moments, is that um, some publishers are starting to sell their podcast's IP to companies like Netflix. Mm-hmm. Quite um, a few, yeah. And, you know, we had, I think the big one was the Tortoise and the Sky Media Partnership that was announced just, just weeks ago. That you are, again, you, you are telling a story and you can tell that story in audio, you can record people telling that story, whatever else. But there's then this huge opportunity to, take that into a sort of almost cinematic experience. And that's, I mean, if you've got those ideas and you can sell them to somebody like Spotify or Sky, uh, Netflix or Sky, then you, great. But do they work? If you look at Dr. Death, for example, which was a very successful Wondery podcast in the States, that was then formed into a television series with Joshua Jackson, who those of us who are old enough to remember Dawson's Creek uh, <laughs> will remember. Um, but, and that, that pipeline of podcast to television yeah. is one I also think we are going to see grow because I, I now what... think that there are podcasts being written with that IP pipeline in mind. Yeah, see, but, you know, so there's exactly the problem. This is what absolutely grind my gears. <laughs> yes. Something works and the bean counters f*** it up. <laughs> By trying to take it everywhere else that they can make money from it. The one I was thinking specifically was Homecoming. A thriller from Gimlet Media starring Catherine Keener, Oscar Isaac and David Schwimmer. Yeah, that was I a brilliant, this. This that's a brilliant prod- podcast and they took it to Netflix and it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's why Disney does live action versions of brilliant films. 
Because they haven't got an imagination between them anymore because it's run by bean counters. This this is fantastic. This is everything I wanted from a podcast discussion. And Emma Watson was the worst casting for (laughs) Belle I've ever seen. Don't get me started. It only took me 30 minutes. I do want to just follow up on something you've said there, Peter, because before you were talking about, you know, there's you can do a podcast and still have it be audio. But I wonder if there is, because of the bean counters, if there is now going to be pressure for everybody to do video podcasting because do you remember it was only a couple of weeks ago in terms of recording uh sky pillsbury did a fantastic look an oral history of everything that happened at gimlet since they were uh acquired by spotify and they basically said they had no interest in the craft of podcasting and actually creating really good podcasting they were all about the monetization and it seriously hit their ability to do it and if spotify is also introducing and promoting their video podcasting capabilities is there a disincentive to just do audio for audio's sake do you want me to rant again (laughs) (laughs) i mean again i think this is this is where publishers have an advantage because they don't need netflix they might they like them. they might like yeah. to have Netflix or Sky or whoever, but they don't need them because they've got their own audience that's engaged for a whole other bunch of reasons. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think what it comes down to, and this is something that we talk about in the collective quite a lot, where we've got a range of podcasters making hugely variable content, is about what's your ultimate goal of your podcast and some of our most successful podcasters, which I think links into what Peter was saying don't have huge audiences, but they link to their businesses where they're, so for example, if they're a consultant or they work in marketing or whatever, they might only need to acquire a couple of high ticket clients as a result of them listening to their podcast to make really quite a lot of money. And if they make a podcast on a two-weekly or monthly basis of which 100 people listen and they generate two new clients a month or one new client a month for X amount of money, then that's job done. And I think that we get very, very focused on listenerships and downloads, whereas actually particularly in publishing as well, as Peter said, you've got an engaged audience. You need to, I think that that the key thing is for them to think about, for people to think about what you want your audience to be doing and actually to target your content and your output for your podcast to that, to encourage people down whatever line you would go. And I think it's really tempting to try and be everywhere, but I'm such a big fan of niches and the Americans have this phrase of the riches are in the niches. And, <laughs> you know, I don't, I just think you can't be niche enough, you know, and there's no shame in that. You don't have to be everywhere and you don't have to be everything to everybody. Nobody is attractive to everybody, whoever you are and whatever you do. And I think just finding where your sweet spot is, is the key thing with your podcast. I think this is um, this actually ends up coming right back to um, what we opened with at the start. And, and it's something um, Esther Newman said at the Publishing Podcast, something that really stuck with me. Her session was about, um, she's the editor of, of uh, Women's Running UK. And they launched a podcast um, because they wanted initially to drive subscriptions to the magazine and, and the print product. And they kind of realized that actually, the, so, so, so they launched the podcast because they wanted to be able to keep the runner's company. So it was sort of an hour and a bit, you know, you, you go for an hour long run, you listen to them. And actually the feedback from the audience was that, that they were less interested in sort of running tips and more interested in hearing the editor and her co-host talk about the time they got chased by a swan. And they said that that kind of, it, it ended up 
sort of forcing this whole rethink about the way that they did the podcast and the audience they targeted with that podcast and that it wasn't the it perhaps wasn't quite what they set out to be but it was a way to really build quite a deep relationship with and it, it, I mean part it's a sort of overlap with their existing audience but with this group of people that just love having their company and sort of almost having the, the friends in their ears but I think that's really true and it's such a great example um they were a finalist at the Women's International Women's Podcast Awards last year. And it's an example of a podcast which the audience for reading a magazine might be quite different to an audience who just want to pop a podcast in their ears while they've got, if they've got three kids and getting out on a 30 minute run is the only time they get to themselves. They're probably not going to subscribe to a magazine because they don't have time to sit down and read that at home, but they do have time to consume a podcast while they're quickly walking the dog or doing the school run or nipping out for a run. And I do think that that is such a brilliant example of a podcast that has really listened to their audience and pivoted accordingly. And they've, Esther's done brilliant work with that. It's an amazing example, I think. Not to take us all too far away from getting chased by swans, because I think this is something that we desperately need to invest See, that in ourselves. Would, that would work on video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that we, we can't fail to mention is that this year we've seen an increased focus on monetization, attribution, and measurement in terms of podcasting. So way back at the start of the year, talking about that gold rush, Spotify acquired... Who haven't they acquired? <laughs> yeah. So in February, they acquired Chartable and Podsites. And since then, it's been, if you are a podcast measurement company or a podcast attribution company, then somebody's going to snap you up. No channel in terms of advertising spend grew faster than digital audio last year. So in, it grew by 58% in the US alone, reaching nearly $5 billion according to the IAB. And per a 2022 Edison Research Survey, 73% of the US population aged 12 or older listen to digital audio obviously podcasting is a big part of that and you know at what point can you separate it out anymore which is up from 68 percent in 2022 advertisers want to be involved but they also want to be part and parcel of the discussions around how effective podcast advertising is so for instance at the ib uk's most recent uh, update of their gold standard they included audio for the first time along with gaming and it just seems to me to be this this that the gold rush has now sort of ended and we're now actually kind of building structures to support everything that we have been promising over the last couple of years. I think people are trying to build those structures. I don't think they're there yet. Mm. You know, and it's it's right, isn't it? You, if, you're, if you're spending money on a podcast, you want to know how many people actually listen to it. And, and there's so much fraud. But it's it's bizarre it's, how much fraud there is. And it's really hard to, as a podcaster, it's really hard to be able to give those numbers that, that make sense. Esther, you did that thing um, – Oh, we need to we need to talk about podcasting, and I think that 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 is a good thing. That is the start of a proper discussion about that. That again, it comes back to that professionalization thing. It's not just people throwing money at advertising for podcasts because they think it's cool, which is what used to happen. Um, it's because they're actually treating it. This is where I support the bean counters, actually, <laughs> ironically. Oh my. God, well, because this I think an actually there's there's a sense of reality. I'm, I don't know if I, you want me to jump ahead to my moment, but um, there's a sense of reality starting to come in. I still don't think the technology is anywhere near where it needs to be. You know, an idiot, a tech idiot like me can't figure out exactly how many people listen to a podcast, and that's what needs to change. It needs to be easy. 
But I think that's a really interesting point of what it boils down to is how do you measure return on investment? Mm. And I think this is something that producing, you know, production companies who are particularly pitching for branded podcasts find that really hard. And because if you go to a company and you say, why haven't you, you haven't got a podcast, you need a great show. It could be brilliant for your brand. It's an amazing part of your marketing arm. Uh, it's a great way of reaching new audiences and engaging your current ones. And they say, well, how do you measure that? Apart from download numbers, which we all know are not an ideal measurement, how do you measure that? And I think that's something that the return on investment piece um, is something that there's a group that I'm a part of are working on some research around that at the moment because being able to categorically show what somebody is going to get in return, I think is a really, will be a growing area that is absolutely necessary in order to keep particularly branded podcasts to make those relevant and affordable and interesting to brands to be able to really see that in a profession. That is one area that I do think the professionalization, <laughs> I agree with Peter, like I have some sympathy with the bean counters. I think you have to give them what they need and what they want in order to keep the flow of work coming in for podcasters to keep growing the industry. The one thing I'd say in counter to the bean counterpoint, because in order for that to be effective, we need to be realistic. And, and this, this is kind of what my piece was about. We need to be realistic about listener numbers. Yeah. And so what's happened with so much of digital media is that you've ended up with brands inflating and inflating and inflating. Mm -hmm. And then, then everybody else has to inflate to keep up with it. And you'll end up with publishers, you know, they'll sort of say, oh, yeah, we'll get you like 10,000 views on an article and they'll PPC half of it. And it, that's not real audiences. And what we've got still in podcasting is this sort of embarrassment about low listener numbers. Yeah. And it's not, you know, if the top 10% of podcasts in the Buzzsprout network have 400 listens in the first week, like th this is the kind of benchmarking we're talking about. And what prompted this was um, Bloomberg had actually done an investigation where they found that there was this, um, some of the apps were um, forcing listeners to sort of listen to us just over a minute of a podcast in order to move on to like the rest of a game or the rest of a, something they were reading. <laughs> and that was inflating the podcast listener numbers. And that, and that was publishers were doing that in order to achieve higher listener numbers on their show. That is the start of such an awful slippery slope where people like perfectly legitimate publishers are going to go to advertisers with 500 listeners and the advertiser is going to say, well, no, because I'm going to go to this person with like 10,000. And it's like, well, those 500 genuine people mean an awful lot more if they are listening to 30 minutes. Anybody who's still listening, we love you. You are of value to us. But it's, it's that idea of the time you're spending with your brand. And we can't, we can't let this get inflated. I really don't want to see this industry get go the rest of the way of digital media in terms of measurements and metrics. It, it can't. Here, here. So there's a really good piece um, on Adweek from Mark Stenberg, who is a familiar name no to one. us, I think. <laughs> yeah, entitled How Defective Media Turned Its Hit Podcast Into a 7% Bump in Subscribers. So normal gossip of the podcast generated 2,500 subscriptions, which they're directly attributing to this podcast since May. So again, not huge amounts in the grand scheme of things, but enough for that scale of organization and for that podcast. I think it is someone's written that in the doc, but the one thing I so often talk about is that if you have 400 listeners a week, if you put 400 people in, in a room in front of you on a weekly basis, 
you would be thinking, I'm talking to the world here, (laughs) you know, because that is a lot of people in real life. And I think we just so easily lose sight of that, that this inflation of numbers and, you know, talk about this golden number of 10,000 and talking to 10,000 people. And you think, well, it's a bit like social media followers, isn't it? Of your thousand followers on whatever platform you're on, how many of those people would actually buy from you? or really truly say that they're a fan of yours, or they're really engaged with everything you do. How many but are if you real? Have 400, well, indeed. But if you have 400 people actually turning up into a room on a weekly basis who are making an effort to come to you, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the equation, you can equate them to loyal and engaged podcast listeners. That's a lot. And if you were a business person doing a weekly speech in a theatre and you had 400 or 1,000 or 632 people or whatever every week, you'd be thinking you were doing pretty well. And I just think one of the things that we've lost sight of a little bit is how how powerful people in the hundreds can be from a small business perspective in particular, and even from a large business perspective as well. Interesting that we've seen such a growth in B2B podcasts based on that. You know, we've seen they're not talking to huge audiences. They're not designed to be, but they're doing thought leadership in mm. podcasting in the same way that they, you know, would also do on LinkedIn. And bizarrely, this huge growth in internal podcasting of companies for, you know, the, the larger ones who'd like to keep their employees abreast. It's using audio for such vastly different purposes. And they're all delivering value in a way. It's just not kind of those, <laughs> unless you're Joe Rogan, unless you're always sunny, unless you're Barack Obama, you're not delivering those numbers. And it almost feels more real as a result of that. One could argue that ha- how successful has the Obama Springsteen podcast or the Meghan Markle podcast yeah. been as a return on investment? <laughs> for, for well, they're not going to Spotify going to tell us. No. <laughs> <laughs> All of that together suggests that this could be the year that podcasting gets a kind of sense of realism that reality actually has started to bite. I'm sick of talking about Joe Rogan. <laughs> those those listener those listener numbers are irrelevant. You know, I did a, a publishing show panel with Chris Finn uh, and Anush Shikalian um, in March, and Chris talked about to, uh, DC Thompson's biggest podcast earner, and it's a niche B two B podcast that's delivering them six figures in revenue. And it's got hundreds of listeners, not thousands or millions. It's got hundreds of listeners because you know what Norman was saying about being in the right people in the right room. That's exactly what they sell that on. Um, and it's that he talked about this idea of creative monetization. So whether that's for branded content or sponsored episodes or sponsored series, you're actually working with the sponsors and you're, you're delivering something that is very clearly giving them value. And I think that, so if you if you look at that from an advertising point of view, you're giving people something that they really, really want, even though it's a small audience. And if you go back to that small audience, Esther said this right at the beginning, that idea of super fans from the listener side, there's creative monetization that can be done there as well. This leads really nice into my media moment. This idea of um, monetizing super fans, which is um, something else here that, that I've noticed come up quite a bit, is that the, a lot of the early paid podcast efforts that we saw in 2021 have started to move from kind of those early tests to slightly more established efforts. Um, so I've got two two quite big examples from the UK: Tortoise, which 
I know we've mentioned <laughs> that we're big Tortoise fans, uh, but they're actually, they started using Apple's podcast subscription tool to get access to gated podcasts via Apple without paying for a full Tortoise membership, mm-hmm. which initially seems like quite a weird way to do that. Like, is that not cannibalizing their main Tortoise subscription? But um, they did an interview with Apple that where they said, actually, it's a nice gateway into the rest of their content that they're now podcast first. But the idea is if you if you do get that Apple podcast subscription, you do enjoy listening to like that small slice of their their subscription content, you're much more likely to eventually convert into a full tortoise membership. And, and particularly interesting about that is that they, they found that, that actually let them reach an even younger audience. So Tortoise's average membership age is 39, which is way below like the average publisher's membership age of about 50. But their average paid listener age on through the Apple podcast subscriptions was 29, which I thought was really interesting. And I think alongside one of the things that Apple and Spotify's um, sort of early, well, they weren't early, but they were fairly late moves into subscription tools. But because a lot of the big people have got into subscription tools, we're starting to see better tools come up for publishers. So Pool, um, our sponsors have actually, uh, they announced a partnership with Edisound a couple of weeks ago. Um, So they're going to, that sort of integrating subscription capabilities into publisher podcasts. And, and, you know, if you're listening to, you can listen to a little bit of audio before you get the subscription wall up. Um, And there's little things like that. I know there are a couple more that have um, partnered with Spotify to try and help publishers and content creators offer a little way into the podcast before they're hit with that um that sort of subscriber wall and those those sort of things i think are really really interesting in helping publishers who perhaps don't want to go straight out with completely free podcasts well here's a way to you know bring it in as a bit more of a a membership or subscription thing some really early tests but i think next year it'll be interesting to see where those all shake out they are brilliant and what they've done with you know ben you and there are doing all that production stuff and really, really delivering quality audio that Naomi talked about earlier. One of the things, you know, immediate, particularly History Extra gets held up as here's where we all want to be, guys. This is a publishing exemplar, the publishing (laughs) podcast exemplar. Dave Musgrove has been doing that thing for over 15 years. (laughs) Yes, he has 150 million listens on that podcast. He's been doing it for 15 years. And that, again, is that idea of reality that, you know, you, you don't get it for nothing. You've got to really, really work at it. The same as anything in publishing takes real work. Well, I was just going to say that um, Esther's point about Tortoise was going to move onto mine, if that's all right, um, which was we we spoke really briefly, or Esther mentioned it really briefly earlier, but um, my media moment was uh, the deal announced between Tortoise Media and Sky Studios a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was one of the most interesting media maneuvers for me of the year um as again a huge tortoise fan um i'm massive uh, proponent of their work and i think it that deal to me uh will be really interesting as a benchmark of the balance between journalistic independence and the power of the very largest media organizations and I don't think that tortoise have uh, that they're not a naive organization. You know, the people involved in that are highly experienced and have been around the business a very long time. Uh, but I think it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out with the balance between their very, very high quality slow news, you know, is what they're obviously known for. And I think that was really brought home to me yesterday when 
I switched my TV, my smart TV on. <laughs> and uh, London Grad for me has been one of the podcasts of the year. And the first thing that popped up on the homepage of Virgin Media, which is my TV provider, was the Sky This Is London Grad uh, documentary that is now available. And I thought, oh, I never expected to watch this. This plays back into everything we were just saying about visualization and that transition. And I thought, I've loved this, loved that podcast. And I don't think I want to watch that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really interested to see how that move plays out over a period of time. I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and maybe we will off mic but um thank you so much Naomi for coming on where can listeners find and listen to you so my work currently is over at the skylarkcollective.co.uk um if you just search for that you'll find us that's the community um and the international women's podcast awards also sits there just add a, a forward slash awards and you'll find us um and my my own personal podcast is called Smashing the Ceiling. Uh, if you just search on any of the usual places, you'll find it there. It's green artwork. Um, that is stories of women with unusual, interesting and inspiring careers. Uh, there is a new season of that due very soon. Perfect. And thank you for giving them a description of the logo as well. I feel like we never, ever do that when we recommend it to people. Well, there um, you go. <laughs> <laughs> But we do need to thank Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for sponsoring this season of the Media Voices podcast and the upcoming Media Moments 2022 report. Please do check out their new B2B media publication, The Audiences, over at theaudiences.com. Loads of content already, as Peter mentioned at the start, to give a flavor of what to expect. And Esther, can people... I, I keep hearing this on the grapevine. I'm sure it's not true because it'd be ridiculous. People, can people sign up to pre-register for the for the report this year? You can, so you can get it what? sent to you as soon as we release it, rather than having to remember. Uh, so you can pre-register to download that by going to voices.media/mm22. I feel like we can't talk about podcasts without mentioning that the Publisher Podcast Awards are actually now open. Uh, until the 9th of December. So if you've got a great publisher podcast, head over to publisherpodcastawards.com and send it in to us. I swear it comes around earlier every year. It actually (laughs) comes around later. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen to this very meta podcast. We will see you next week for another tour through uh, one of the upcoming topics from our Media Moments 2022 report. But for now, thank you so much and goodbye. Bye. Bye.